All right, man. Welcome to the intro to episode 79, uh, Crow 777 Radio Podcast. Jason Lingren is with me. We are going to take a part on the tale of the Edward Bernays episode, The Advent of Cinema, Radio, and the Worst Weapon Ever Invented Television, and we are going to demonstrate that in spades. But first, a couple corrections. Early on, you will hear me say Facebook a couple times when I mean YouTube. Uh, I have not used Facebook for years and never will again. Uh, as well, as I'm speaking about the movie later on in the clip, um, Back to the Future, I am saying radio when I mean television or TV, but I think that's pretty obvious. But it looks like we have a response from YT to the modern meme, modern day book burning. They, there is an old, old-timey image circulating that says, your films will last forever on YouTube. You can go to my Twitter, Crow777, on Twitter to see this image, which appears to me to be a response to the idea of the modern-day book burning, which is, in fact, going on. And I would point out to YouTube, your films will not last forever because you guys delete them and you censor them. That is not films lasting forever. Anyhow, this is one heck of an episode. As we delve into the damage television has done, people will be stunned. And I'm going to add here a little bit of information that appears in the second hour because I want everyone up front to be aware. If you look at your television, there's usually a hertz indicator that tells you how many hertz your television has. As an example, if it says 60 hertz, it means that the frame rate, basically the frame rate of your television is 60 frames per second. What it's actually telling you is your screen is refreshing 60 times a second. Now, the human eye, I forget what it is. It's like 10, 14 frames, something like that. That's what the human eye can pick up. To put this into perspective... Hollywood Golden Age films ran at 24 frames a second, and some of the reasons cited for that was, of course, smoothness of movement, but it would put kind of a motion blur, which gives that quality that we are familiar with in old film. But here's the rub. Modern TVs coming out now have a Hertz rating of over 120, some of them, which means your television screen is refreshing in your face over 120 times. In this episode, I point out the just blatant subliminal programming that went into the sign-off of the Star Spangled Banner. And actually, I don't know if I've got that right. I think it's the Star Spangled Banner. Maybe it's America the Beautiful. It doesn't really matter. It's not the point. The point is you can go on YouTube now, look at the sign-off clip that was used in this country, and see the programming, which is verbatim the language used in the movie They Live, Obey, this kind of thing. Here's my point. When you get a refresh rate on modern TVs up over 120 hertz, where that screen is refreshing in your face 120 times a second, in my view, you are looking at the potential for carrier signals, nothing more. What's even the point? At a certain point of frame rate, which has got to be a lot closer to maybe 30 or 40, your eyes never going to know the difference. Um, the argument is being made that for Ultra HD and Super HD and Handy Dandy HD, that the higher frame rate really gives a smoother amount of movement. My point is still standing firm here. When you start to get up to 120 frames or more, something else is going on here. Um, anyhow, this is a heck of an episode. If anyone ever wondered what television has done to our country and what is doing to our country now, listen to this episode. We lay it down. You can test it. You can challenge it. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren for episode 79. There it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio Podcast. This is episode 79. Here we are, man, in the modern age. Uh, to reiterate the call that I've been putting out and everywhere I've gone, uh, I'm out decentralizing my communication, uh, looking for open invitations to come on other people's show who have at least a moderate audience to talk about the times we're facing. Uh, I have recently done Truth Frequency Radio. I have done RFB. I have done ODD TV. Um, I'm doing Freeman tomorrow. Uh, there's just a number of places. I can't even keep them all straight. I don't care if you believe in aliens. I don't care if you don't. Race, color, creed, religion, none of it matters. We need to set these things aside and come together and decentralize our communication. Uh, I am now at two weeks and two days and still locked out of my Facebook account. But anyhow, having said all that, welcome, Jason. Hello, Crow. How goes it, man? What's it like down there in Louisiana today? And actually cooled off a little bit. We were uh, only in the 60s last night. 
Wow, we're, we're actually having a beautiful fall up here in New England. Um, it's sometimes uh, fall is like the best time of year, not too hot, not too humid. Uh, the leaves aren't turning yet, um, but uh, there it is. Anyhow, we've got quite a bit to get through today. We're going to be covering on the tale of Edward Bernays, whose lifetime we are told covered the advent of radio television and cinema, we're going to be covering those three things as they are the main tools of propaganda and social programming brought to bear on our time. Um, where would you like to start? Well, let's go over the five points you were bringing up to me yesterday, and uh, let's get them out for folks first before we jump into the propaganda. All right. So many people have been stopping in in the face of all the censorship that is going on online. And a lot of people have a lot of things to say. But the big question that is always asked, what can we do? So I put together a five point action plan of things you can actually do. Uh, they harm nobody. Uh, I would point out that right now I am kicked out of Facebook for supposedly bullying, which is complete, pure nonsense. For someone to have been bullied by me, there needs to be an injured party. So I openly ask YouTube and Google, who have I injured? Produce your injured party if I have, in fact, bullied someone. And I would beg to differ. Actually, what has gone on here is we have challenged the mainstream nonsense narrative. Um, but anyhow, let's get into the five-point kind of idea that I'm putting forward for people to start to stand up and to start to be able to take foundational actions that can address what we're facing in the uh, basically in the face of modern day book burning, the censorship that is rampant on social media. First bullet point one is more of a statement than an action plan. One of the big reasons some of us older people are doing this is because the next generation are going to be slaves if we do not stand up. If you have children, think about those children. If you have nephews, think about those nephews. If you know anyone who is younger than 30 years old, think about the lifetime that they will lead if, in fact, we lose our ability to have free speech, thought, and expression. And we will point out later in this episode that one of the main programming tools is to lower adult minds into an infantile, animalistic level. And one of the main things that makes a human being a human being is freedom of thought and freedom of speech. Anyhow, that's bullet point one. Bullet point two, we all have been trained online by the powers that be. And I would point out that Google was funded by the CIA. For those of you that don't know, we have all been trained to act in a herd mentality online through social programming, through any number of things. It is now time to set aside race, color, creed. If you think the world is flat, cool. You think it's round, cool. You think reptilians run this place, cool. You think they don't, cool. Set all these things aside. Come together as people and stand up for what is correct. Your basic natural rights of free speech and freedom of expression are on the chop block here. All those other things need to be set aside. And I will point out once again, any system that contains a lot of variety is a hard system to control. When you have been taught to belittle someone because of the things they believe that you don't, what you're in fact doing is attacking the variety of a system. You should embrace that variety. It should be a point to learn or to debate or what, however you want to look at it. But every person who thinks something differently than you do brings variety to a system and hence by extension makes that system harder to control by social programming. Bullet point three, I'm going to bring to bear what the Internet brought to bear. Uh, ARPANET was originally put together by the military. The idea behind it was to decentralize communication. The idea that they stated in their militaristic terms was that if a city was blown off the map, it didn't matter because the Internet would allow all messages to go out in so many directions that the message would always get through. The idea behind this is decentralization. For all of us using Facebook, for all of us using YouTube, we have centralized. In other words, we're piling all our eggs in one basket, one little city called YouTube, and it can be bombed as my channel is living proof of right now. So what I am doing and what I'm advising others to do is to decentralize your communication. Right now, my offer to go out on anyone's network to speak about these things is part of that decentralization plan. Number four, quit Facebook, quit YouTube. 
just get rid of these things. And I'm a realist, so I know a number of people listening won't be willing or can't for whatever reason to do these things. But the truth is, is that Google was funded partially by the CIA. Facebook and YouTube and these other things, they're just data collection mechanisms. Whenever you're given free services, you better recognize that you're the product. That's what's been going on here all this time. If you can quit these services, do it. If you can't, Every place you put a comment, put the hashtag modern book burning or some other hashtag that lets the powers that be know you do not consent and that you are not with what's going on. That could get a lot of traction. Lastly, point five, get your own website. Right now, what we're seeing is corporations who own all the information systems trying to censor us, trying to limit our free speech, trying to curb our freedom of expression. These are natural rights, in my view, not inalienable, not inalienable. They are things we are born with. They don't mean a damn thing if we don't demand them. But nonetheless, we are all born with these rights. Right now, Crow777radio.com is my private website. As it stands now, we can say and do the things without infringement that we want. So I would advise everybody who has been using these platforms to get your own website. Anyhow, there's my spiel, Jason. There's my attempt to put out an actionable set of things to do for all the people who have been asking. And I'm behind all of that, and let's, uh, let's see what kind of results we get. Yeah, I mean, um, for, for the average person, even if you were to look at just the ideas that are being encapsulated here, you're going to start to understand the problem at hand. But I will point out, as we get into radio, television, and cinema, um, they were basically co-opted early on by the oligarchical families. Tavistock, the Frankfurt School, other social programmings have programmers have always been ever-present. They set standards of things they want to do, like remove the Judeo-Christian ideal from Western culture because it equated men with God. It was a higher-minded idea. They wanted to remove that, which they have well attacked and well diminished, believe me. And what they wanted to do was replace it with an infantile adult mindset and an animalistic mindset. We will get into these things. But anyhow, people should make no mistake, the biggest, most damaging thing that we're exposed to every day in this world right now is television. And anyone who doesn't understand that or doesn't take away what we lay down in these episodes, well, here's something you can do. Go out and get the book called Tavistock, Programming the Masses by Daniel Estelin. I don't agree 100% with the book, but he's done some damn good research in there with regard to what Tavistock has done with media. These are some of the ideas that we will be covering from a different angle. But there it is. If you want to know more, go get a book like that. And I'm putting my stamp of approval on it. Uh, it appears to me that this individual took a pretty damn open-minded run at this and laid it down uh, in a way that I think will help anyone who wants to take a look. Anyhow, Jason, back over to you. You want to jump in or you want to cover anything else? Uh, Daniel Estelin's actually really good from what I've seen. He did a great expose on Bilderberg really early on, too, like quite a few years ago before everybody kind of got in on that bandwagon. So, yeah, I, g I give Daniel Estelin a thumbs up. That not only that, he does a breakdown in that book of modern news, which I have covered before in the show. I actually read an excerpt uh, about a paragraph from his book so that people can actually look at what news is. It's not news at all. It's basically just propaganda. It's what it is. Um, but he breaks it down in a way that would allow any individual to then turn to their local or national news and compare what they've just been told to what they're being presented with and confirm that, in fact, Mr. Estelin uh, outlined, in my view, nearly 100 percent accurately how it is being implemented against you, why it is programming, and then demonstrably the little tactics that are being thrown in your face every day that we've all become so accustomed to that most of us can't see. But the television is is the biggest weapon of mass destruction for Western culture that has ever been brought to bear. Make no mistake. Uh, in three short generations, it has paid a key role in lowering uh, the human mind. And even by Tavistock's own example, they did things like set benchmarks so they could see how well they had programmed people. One of their benchmarks was when we have sufficiently lowered 
adult minds to an infantile enough level, we will be able to recognize and measure this because their children will no, no, no longer recognize their adult authority seeing the infantile mindset that then both the adult parent and child possess. I'm not even kidding. This is documented stuff. These were actual benchmarks put in place to measure how much damage they had accomplished using media, TV being one of the main sources. Anyhow, Jason, you ready to do this thing? I am. Now, there's something interesting about the news, and I don't know what exactly you call this, but no matter what news you tune into, there's a cadence they use in the way they pronunciate things and the approach that they take. It's sort of, especially American politicians use, they also, especially the higher up ones, they use a cadence and a, a speech pattern that's different from normal speech. And I don't know if there's some sort of insidiousness behind that or if it's just an intentional mindset that they're trying to, to go at you that this is important. Listen to it. So maybe you have something to say about that. But it definitely strikes me every time. I don't like listening to mainstream news. It, it, it irritates me. Well, there, there is something to that, Jason. Most people are unaware that most of the main players in the political realm and other you know, important realms in our life that go out in front of the public have been trained, literally trained, by different, I don't even know what to call them, schools provided by Tavistock. Um, people like Kissinger, who had such a meteoric rise, uh, are one of the people that was trained through. So they are all the people who are going to end up mattering. Many of them can be shown to have been trained by the Tavistock Institute. But with regard to the news, what you will notice is that almost all local news and a lot of national news segments are brought to you in 30 seconds or less. Sometimes it's only two sentences, but all of the language is very simple. And there is a reason for this. Everyone might remember Dante's Inferno, the, the classic literature called Dante's Inferno. That book was credited with saving the Italian language and recognizing that language is one of the keys and pathways to an, a higher mind in a civilization. What news seeks to do, and again, Tavistock has actually documented this, is to use an attempt to use language so simple in news that they are basically saying a verb and a crap load of very simple nouns like dog, the president, this is bad. That's how it's delivered to you. But there's a bigger overarching idea behind it. That idea, and I swear to you, this is actually documented, is to try to bring the English language down to, I think it was 80 main words and a couple hundred overarching words. This plays directly off what is known about Dante's Inferno, why it was put together, later the Canterbury Tales to do the same thing for English, and then uh, sometimes you'll see Don Quixote reference to do a similar thing in the Spanish or Mexican-based languages, where people recognized that one of the pathways to a higher-minded civilization was by preserving the richness of language. What your news is doing every day is trying to diminish the breadth and width of our vocabulary to basically 80 common words, I'm not even kidding, and to lower all the minds that adopt this way of speech. So I know that was a bit of a wordy response, Jason, but I just did the research on this like I think a day and a half ago. Well, there you go. It's also in the way they pronounce it as well that I noticed, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Obviously, there's there's intention there. But let's get into propaganda. Let's do it, man. Let's get into propaganda proper once again. So the idea of propaganda is certainly not new. It has been used to sway public opinion in numerous ways throughout human civilization. The big difference with the invention and common use of radio in the early 20th century is that information could be disseminated immediately. And I would like to reiterate here what I said on the last episode, that Edward Bernays had already solidly established his work when the first of the instant communication inventions came about, and that is, of course, radio. More specifically, commercial radio that anyone in the public could tune into. The film industry came right along next in a, in a large way, although uh, film had been invented in the 19th century as well. And then, of course, we have television and later on the Internet. The work that Bernays did, however, was without a doubt fully integrated into this programming that all of these mediums would release for public consumption from the get-go. Right. And there is a very insidious nature behind all these mass forms of communication. First of all, it's the oligarchical families who have co-opted them, who own them, who have complete control over them. But you've got to understand 
that back in the days of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, uh, in my view, two of the most damaging historical figures in Western life uh, ever, probably, as far as I know, began to show how the human mind could be hacked. But the work they did was taken on by places like the Frankfurt School, the Tavistock Institute, and it was reshaped to be shown that herd mentality, lowering human beings down into an animalistic mindset, which has been pretty much achieved over the past three generations, is a thing that can be manipulated. Uh, I would I would bring everyone's memory back as an example of using mass kind of psychosis um, to get a result. After 9-11 in the United States, immediately after, when you went out to the world, it was painted red, white, and blue. There was nary a house or a person carrying a flag. It was jingoism on a level that is almost unbelievable. I remember seeing it, and I was on the East Coast at the time, and just thinking to myself, oh my God, what is happening here? What we were, what was going on then was social programmers bringing a herd mentality and mass psychosis to the masses. As radio comes online and then TV later, which is stated by the Tavistock Institute as combining both the ability of radio and cinema together to get this new, more powerful weapon, you will see that one of the main aims of all media in the modern age is to put entire societies into a herd mentality and then do mass propagation of social engineering, which basically comes down to lowering adult minds into emotional, infantile, animalistic states. So there it is, Jason. So to give some background on radio, beginning in 1912, every country approved of and received designated letters to begin radio station call letters with. This was to avoid confusion with other countries' radio stations. This would be comparable to how domain, name, how domain names work on the Internet today. In the United States, the letters W and K were selected for use. In 1923, the Federal Communications Commission ordained that all new radio stations east of the Mississippi River would use W as the first letter and stations west of the Mississippi would use K. You know, Jason, I almost wish um, I didn't see this bullet point from you until this morning, and I almost wish I had taken more time because there's certainly going to be a story wrapped up in, in these call letters. But as it stands now, I, I don't have the knowledge base to address it like I'd like to. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever. I didn't see anything jump out at me either, but, um, well, we know how these people work, don't we? Well, uh, K is 11, and, and you know, quite often in, in the mindset of the things we see go on, it's the beginning of the casting of a spell, but it's a little interesting that the East gets the W, which typically it would be considered as West in a lot of my, I don't know, I would have to, to take time to break this down. Let's go ahead and keep pushing. Yeah, I noticed that as well. In 1915, speech was first transmitted across the American continent from New York City to San Francisco and across the Atlantic Ocean from naval radio station NAA at Arlington, Virginia to the Eiffel Tower in Paris. So very quickly, they started getting the hang of this stuff in a large way. So here's a crazy firsthand story from when I was in San Diego um, a couple of years ago. There's this one road that goes by a shopping center uh, called College Grove. If you're on the road that fronts the shopping center called College Grove and you're headed uh, west, there's an on-ramp to the freeway. If you don't get on that on-ramp, there's like this embutment wall and a big like naval field of some sort up there. For years, there were bushes growing covering the plaque on that wall, and they finally trimmed them, and it was right before I left to the east. And I don't remember the exact date, but now that you're showing that it's 1915, I think it actually says first global radio network established here in 1915. It's very early 1900s. I'm not sure I've got the date, but anyone in San Diego could cruise over there and look at it, post, make a correction if I've got the date wrong. But uh, I remember sitting there one day, I just got my hair cut, and I was sitting there and I looked over and noticed they had trimmed all the bushes down and I could see the plaque. And I was like, holy smokes, that early they're claiming to have had what they are calling a global radio network. Quite a thing, man, quite a thing. Anyhow, back to you. When the United States entered World War I in 1917, all radio development was controlled by the United States Navy in a strong effort to prevent its possible use by enemy spies. The U.S. government soon took control of all patents that were related to radio technology. 
A large amount of propaganda on the home front was through the use of posters with very dramatic imagery. The posters would mainly be used for the procuring of money, recruitment of new troops, and other resources the military would need to sustain itself. World War I is when the famous American propaganda posters of Uncle Sam came about due to the work of the CPI organization that Edward Bernays was a part of in his early days. These posters were used as major recruitment devices. The Food Administration also distributed propaganda in the form of advertisements with the intent of keeping morale up during wartime. Right. It's crazy, Jason. There's actually a whole genre of art now from the Eastern Bloc kind of Uncle Sam propaganda type art that is actually very valuable right now. There's nary a country in the world that was not using art. And what this goes to show is if we go way back before cinema and all these things, it was no mystery to the people who were rulers what music what theater and what art itself can do. And there are many examples of, you know, mid-1800 art being used as propaganda. And of course, what we're going to see come to bear here is people like Edward Bernays, who are going to stand on the foundations of Tavistock and his uncle Sigmund Freud and all these other people and begin to implement the mass programming of a society through a mass communication device first called radio. So there it is, man. Now, even though civilian radio activities were suspended during World War I, it still saw limited use with such things as broadcasting entertainment to the troops, especially in wounded into the hospitals. Now, as previously stated, in 1917, the United States government took charge of the patents owned by the major companies that were involved in all things radio in the United States to devote that technology to the war effort. All production of radio equipment was allocated to the United States Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and the Coast Guard. The War Department and the Navy Department wanted to maintain a federal monopoly of all uses of radio technology. The wartime takeover of all radio systems ended late in 1918 when the U.S. Congress failed to pass a bill which would have extended that monopoly. The war ended in November of that year. The ending of the federal government's monopoly in radio communications did not prevent the War and Navy Departments from creating a national radio system for the United States, however. On April 8, 1919, Naval Admiral W.H.G. Bullard and Captain Stanford C. Hooper met with executives of the General Electric Corporation, which is commonly known as GE, and asked them to discontinue selling the company's Alexanderson alternators, which are used in the high-power AM radio transmitters of that era, to the British-owned Marconi Company and to its subsidiary, the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of America. The proposal presented by the United States government was that if GE created an American-owned radio company, the Army and Navy would effect a monopoly of long-distance radio communications through this company. This marked the beginning of a series of negotiations through which GE would buy the American Marconi Company and then incorporate what would be called the Radio Corporation of America. In 1919, the government released control of all of the patents they had been holding. The Radio Corporation of America, otherwise known as RCA, was then established with the purpose of distributing control of the radio patents that had been restricted during the war. All right, Jason, there is so much here for the average person to pay attention to. And I'll ask you before I begin to address some of the bullet points in this uh, in this thing you just covered here. Will you be covering the weaponization of RCA as we go through? I definitely mention it. It's it's involved, but you can go ahead and uh, put your own notion into that. All right. So first of all, all the dates in here, like 1919, for those who followed, let me count the ways. We understand what is going on here. In 1918, which is again an encoded date, the U.S. Congress fails to pass a bill. Well, come on, man. When the U.S. Congress does something, it's for a reason. So we understand what is happening here. They're beginning to push this form of mass communication out into a more supposed civilian usage. The only problem here is the Marconi Company, which is another famous name and radio is European. And they're calling it the American Car- uh, Marconi Company. But what you can see here is the overarching British European oligarchs controlling what is going on here. So eventually in 1919, again, let me count the ways, the Radio Corporation of America or RCA is brought to bear. We've covered in other shows, so we probably won't get into it too much here, how RCA is basically the redheaded 
grandfather of NBC, CBS, and all the net big networks that initially came to bear. They all came out of that. But what very few people know is that RCA was never demilitarized from the time it went into World War II, even after. So then all these other offspring networks that went out were, in a sense, coming from a militarized RCA that had begun it all. Um, this goes on and on and on. But make no mistake here, you can see the fingerprints of European oligarchs controlling even the United States Congress, who can't seem to pass a bill to keep the monopoly within the military. Hint, hint, hint. You can see what's going on here. Anyhow, that's enough for right there, Jason, I think. Right. And, and you did just nail it. The incorporation of the assets of Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company of America, the Pan-American Telegraph Company, and those already controlled by the United States Navy led to a new publicly held company formed by General Electric, which owned a controlling interest on October 17, 1919. The following cooperation among RCA, General Electric, the United Fruit Company, the Westinghouse Electric Corporation, and American Telephone and Telegraph, which you know as AT&T, brought about innovations in high-power radio technology. It also led to the founding of the National Broadcasting Company, NBC in the United States. The Army and the Navy granted RCA the former American Marconi radio terminals that had been confiscated during World War I. The formerly mentioned Admiral Bullard received a seat on the board of directors of RCA for his efforts in establishing the company. The result was federally created monopolies in radio for GE and the Westinghouse Corporation, as well as telephone systems for the American Telephone and Telegraph Company. So there it is, man. All forms of mass communication are being controlled here. As I was growing up as a kid, the impression that was put in my mind when I was in school was that all these great innovations came out of military and wartime. I will suggest to you now as an adult with clear vision, it's the other way around. What happened was these innovations came from the military, but then they were used to control masses of people. It was their almost entirely the whole planned function. While we do get entertainment, while we occasionally do get information that matters, like, hey, man, this this fire is coming or something that's not being lied about. It's a true thing. But the main aim of these mass communication devices was being controlled by the oligarchical families, which you can identify by understanding or looking up who owned Westinghouse, who owns General Electric, who owned AT&T. You will find the same names over and over and over. And then to top it off, here we are again, um, October 17, 1919, uh, the General Electric thing, 1919, let me count the ways. This was all planned from the get-go. You are looking at the long game. And when we come forward in time to the 9-11 we're all familiar with now, what you are looking at is a really an open, out-in-the-open salvo for the very same plan that's been going all along, which has one thing in mind, to completely lower the minds of entire countries, basically all countries of the world, to such a diminished level from what the human mind had been that the oligarchs could then control it all. Lock, stock, and barrel, which I have pointed out so many times, is echoed in some of their players, some of their boys, like uh, the guy who wrote Brave New World, 1984, Animal Farm. I've echoed these things over and over, but these people are on the outskirts of these oligarchical families, and those books are tipping the hand to show exactly what is going on here. Anyhow, Jason. So my tie-up for the whole beginning of the 20th century with all of this is we already see a military-industrial complex springing up where all of these technological innovations are being gathered and used by a few companies in bed with the government. Yeah, there's no doubt in how many people online that kind of try to peer through the veil are familiar with Eisenhower's speech warning America that if you don't get a hand, you know, a handle on the industrial on the military-industrial complex, you're going to be in real trouble. The only problem with that is that was a time when people trusted their government. We had just come through World War II. There was this idea that America was the greatest thing ever, and we defeated these horrible Nazis and these you know, imperial Japanese and all this other nonsense, which was nothing more than a theater of war to push towards the end goal, which is complete domination of this world we live on. That's what we're looking at here. So even though they 
tipped their hand with the president of the United States saying, hey, man, you guys better look out for the military industrial complex. They set it to deaf ears, so to speak. But anyhow, back to you. And just from doing this little bit of research, it's quite obvious that they had already had these things in mind from the beginning of the 20th century. So by the time Eisenhower gets around to saying it in 1954 or whatever year that was, you know, it's just a little too little too late. Yeah, you know, the the main thing I would take away here is the dates. These dates go back so far, and they are all encoding the ever-present ones and nines for whatever reason. A lot of people have differing views. It doesn't matter. We can tie it to a time of year called the fall quite often, the major events that are going to shape the fall of the human mind, the fall of human freedom, the fall of free speech, and the onset of the infantile, animalistic adult mind, which is the end goal here. We can see these encodings that are not really arguable. It's one thing to say this is a coincidence, but by the time you've said it's a coincidence a hundred times in one day's research, you better start to catch on here. And so what we see is a damn long game. We see this game going so far back that in our minds, technology wasn't even really a thing in the early 1800s, but yet still we see the encoding in these dates. It's quite a vexing thing, but we're past the time of wearing diapers for those people who would like to have a world where you can have freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and a higher human mind. We're past these times now. It's time to call a spade a spade, and um, I guess I'll leave it right there, Jason. Let's, uh, Let's keep battering this ram on top of the heads of these jackasses. Now, because of all the events that we just described, commercial radio stations start becoming very common over the next few years and have completely become the norm by the time we get around to the Second World War. Right. And as we pull into the Second World War, uh, we're going to see things like the weaponization of the frequency of music. I mean, it just never ends here, even implicating people like uh, Goebbels. Suppose Nazis like Goebbels having a hand in changing the frequency of orchestral A or the tuning of A around the world like you would have a piano. There's there's your key right there. A gets tuned to 440, where it was previously, there were more than one tuning, but the common one people bandy about was the Verde tuning, um, which was supposed to be closer to what would be the supposed Fibonacci sequence. Many people argue that it is a healthier frequency for the human body. Jason and I, both musicians, can state outright that when you tune your guitar to 440 away from 432, it is a more excitable state. In other words, bands like ACDC, if they were required to tune back to 432, you would not get the excitement in the music. But anyhow, to get back to the point, as we pull into World War II here, this is when it's all beginning to happen. We have people like Bernays on the scene. We have the weaponization of musical frequencies. We have the weaponization of RCA, the company, which is going to become all the major network broadcasting on the on the outside of, you know, as we come out of World War II. But anyhow, keep pushing the timeline, Jason. Right, and let's not forget that the 20s and 30s and 40s, you have radios becoming a furniture piece in, in most homes. So, you know, everyone's tuning in, and whatever it is they wanted to broadcast, there was a very limited number of programs. That's what people were tuning into. Yeah, there there it is. You know, it's, it's a bit like watching that old uh, Back to the Future movie and watching uh, things be said like, um, do you have a radio in your house? And he's from the future. He says, I have two. And the kids say, oh, my God, you must be rich. Well, you see, the radio is becoming that in this time frame. And I would point out to you, you don't understand that they're trying to lower the human mind. One of the early radio shows that went out across America was Howdy Doody. What is Howdy Doody? He is a dummy. Words have meaning. So as we get up into Disney and the Muppets and these other things where they're basically trying to blur the line in young children's minds, the difference between a human being and an animal by using talking animals to teach, early on we have Howdy Doody, that wooden dummy that sits on someone's lap and mimics. Uh, you'll see the pattern here as we get in. Go ahead, Jason. Film was also in development during the late 19th and early 20th century. The first major use in potential propaganda was in the form of newsreels. A newsreel is a form of short documentary film 
that were used between the 1910s until the 1960s, regularly released in a public presentation place and containing filmed news stories and other subjects of interest. These short films were a source of news, current affairs, and entertainment for mainstream moviegoers until television supplanted this role beginning in the 1950s. Newsreels are now considered significant historical documents since they are often the only audiovisual record of historical and cultural events of those times, or at least what it is they wanted to portray, I should say. Newsreels were typically exhibited as short subjects preceding the main feature film all the way into the 1960s. There were also dedicated newsreel theaters in many major cities in the 1930s and 1940s, and some large city cinemas also included a smaller theaterette where newsreels were screened continuously throughout the day. Newsreels are quite an insidious thing. Here you have the propaganda arm, our governments, uh, the people in charge, the oligarchical families putting these newsreels together and getting them in cinema. This shows the complicit nature of the entertainment industry called Hollywood with the programmers of this world, the government, and the military-industrial complex. The insidious nature of a newsreel is this. Um, you can go back and look at any number of them, and in a minute I'll give you an example with how they used to sign off television in my lifetime with the Star-Spangled Banner. But the newsreel was usually emotional, so it would uh, draw on your emotions. But no one had a way to record it, review it, and it went by so quickly that it was very effective in its programming method. If you go back and look at any number of newsreels today, <coughs> excuse me, you will see them for the propaganda that they are. And as a matter of fact, I would I couldn't even put a guess on what percentage of the information about World War II during World War II was being brought to you in two major forms, the wartime movie coming out of Hollywood and the newsreel, which was being purported as actual, truthful news coverage of what was going on on this front or that front, which was actually a lie. But to, to give a compare and contrast here. In the 70s, maybe even up to the 80s, I don't remember when it stopped, the broadcasting day for television in the United States generally ended at midnight. As we came up to midnight, they would play a clip uh, that would show the Capitol, the, the U.S. flag, and they would play the Star Spangled Banner. You can go online on YouTube and other places and look this up because people have now shown the subliminal messaging, which is encoded in that type of almost one-to-one -one comparable newsreel in a way, except this was running every day. Uh, many people have rightly pointed out that the movie They Live is using the exact same language, obey, consume. These things were subliminally embedded right into the sign-off of the Star Spangled Banner. Anyone can go look up this clip and see the work that has been done to show how you are being programmed every single day. But here's the rub. Back in the day, many people would watch Johnny Carson, maybe a little bit more TV, and go to sleep as the Star Spangled Banner was coming on, and then a you know a test pattern would come on, and the signal would cut. So the number of Americans that were exposed to that every day is incalculable in my view, but I suggest to everyone listening to this, if you have a problem with any of the information we've laid down, go look at the sign-off Star Spangled Banner clip that closed down every broadcast day in the United States for Lord knows how many decades and understand that the exact same language that was used in the movie They Live is embedded right in that clip and it's in your face, man. So anything to add, Jason? No, not really. That's uh, I'm just old enough to remember that. So <laughs> to totally right. I do remember seeing that as a child. Well, it's a good thing you got us old rusty, crusty dudes around, I guess. <laughs> um, anyhow, I, I mean, the, this is one of the things. When you go back and see that sign-off of the Star Spangled Banner, it's almost like all of a sudden waking up in the twilight zone. It really is. I mean, there are the words being uh, kind of interlaced in the video frame. Uh, obey. Do not question your government. Um, do not question authority. Consume. This is a one-to-one -one with the movie they live. And so any intelligent person will understand that when they made the movie they live in the 80s, they were basically making a, a fictitious storyline out of an actually true occurring propaganda method that had been used in our world for many years. I'd just like to say that they live if anyone out there hasn't seen it. The allegory of the aliens aside, it's just totally dead on. It's, that movie is awesome.
that there's a lot of people out there now trying to do work to show that it's more of a, a documentary, you know, a documentary <laughs> of what's gone on. Well, you know, while you can argue and nitpick and we could go back and forth about the alien thing, it's the ideas that matter here. And I can tell you flat out when he puts on those glasses and sees the word obey and consume, <laughs> your parents, your grandparents, and maybe even your great-grandparents were all exposed to that very same subliminal messaging, which is being revealed through his magic sunglasses. It's not it's not fiction, man. It happened. And you can go look up that clip to prove it to yourself. Anyhow, man, let's keep pushing. One of the first major propaganda films, obviously aiming to incite racial divisions between blacks and whites, was the 1915 film The Birth of a Nation, directed by D.W. Griffith. The film produced instant controversy upon its release. It portrayed the Ku Klux Klan as valiant defenders of white society against rampaging hordes of evil blacks, recently freed from slavery in the Reconstruction era following the Civil War. The NAACP demanded that D.W. Griffith cut two scenes that depicted white women being molested by rampaging blacks, as well as an epilogue that suggested blacks should be shipped back to Africa. The director grudgingly made the cuts, but many national leaders argued that the film should still be banned outright. Riots ensued when the film opened in Boston, Atlanta, and Chicago, and it was banned in at least eight states. Regardless, the movie was the most successful of its time, and it retained this distinction for decades to come. The skewed 19th century racial stereotypes it offered were used as recruitment tools for the Ku Klux Klan, and from 1915 to 1940, the Klan's membership actually grew substantially, highly attributed to the release and success of this film. On February 18, 1915, it became the first motion picture ever to be shown in the White House. President Woodrow Wilson's comment after viewing the film was this, It is like writing history with lightning, and my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. This quote was quickly put into general circulation to promote the film. While trying to find out anything of particular interest of its director, D.W. Griffith, all I could really find that I thought was interesting was that he was a Freemason and is now a very honored one for his contributions in Hollywood. So make of that as you will. Well, you know, my point of view, D.W. Griffith, Griffith is an enemy of the, the common person, the common person trying to raise a family. What you what you see in this bullet point, and I will point out, Birth of a Nation, you know, you just did this whole rundown on it. What did they just remake recently? They just put this film out again. What you are looking at here is the segmentation of society. It's done over and over by the social programmers. I've addressed it so many times where they segment you by race, color, creed, belief system, any number of ways to segment society. Then they introduce friction. Um, and in this case, you know, one of the main players is the Ku Klux Klan, better known as the KKK, which, of course, encodes 33. This is all social programming nonsense. And the real problem here is if you talk to an African-American person or a black person, probably many of them would think this is an accurate portrayal of history when really we have no reason to accept that this is a natural portrayal of anything and that the truth is it is images put together in Hollywood, which means it probably more closely reflects whatever the hell D.W. Griffith wanted to communicate out. And again, we see the kind of close-knit relationship between our capital, the White House, and Hollywood all the way back to 1915. There has never been a time when these two entities were not hand-in-hand, hand, and the reason is is because the oligarchs control both places. And again, there is no mystery to what is going on in this world. There is an endgame. There are a small group of oligarchs that want to control everything. That's what this is about. And we can easily demonstrate the fall of the human mind in the last three generations using these very techniques. And Birth of the Nation is a fine example, um, using these techniques to lower our minds, program us socially. There it is, man. This is kind of a kind of a dark episode, Jason. I almost feel like we should stop and tell some jokes, but it's really not a joking a joking thing we're talking about. But anyhow, um, we've got a bit more time before we get to the top of the hour. So let's try to push through to get a bit more in the first hour. Well, all the, the racial stuff that would come later, it seems like those seeds were sowed way back then. You know, I there have no doubt that there were uh, massive amounts of uh, 
racial tensions going on regardless, especially right after the Civil War. But living where I live, it's just, it's not what it's portrayed to be, you know. And, and, you know, people may say rude things underneath their breath or behind other people's backs. But generally speaking, I see things going off as normal, you know. Commerce continues. People live and coexist and without issues. So it seems to me more like that all the way back in 1915, they put a major propaganda piece out just to make sure to remind everyone, hit them over the head that, hey, these racial stereotypes and divisions exist and you should uh, you should live by them. We should. I, I mean, I almost did a quick look up while you're talking. They just re-released this film. I mean, within the last couple of years, if I'm not mistaken, problem is, is I don't pay money to cinemas. I don't go to movies and I, you know, I don't watch a heck of a lot of TV unless I'm doing research. But I am aware that this was re-released. So why was it re-released? Well, it was released for the same damn reason to stir up racial racial division. If you were an African-American or black person who sees any version of Birth of a Nation, it's going to play on your emotions. I will remind everyone once again, and this is not particular to any race. This is done to every race in one way or another. But just the idea that they re-release this film shows you what is up, man. And emotion is wasted motion. Your emotions are used as a weakness by the oligarchs. They do it all the time. They tell you people were killed in this event or that uh, that event because you're a human being and you want to feel bad for injured parties. The problem here is you are viewed as a weaker human being because of these emotions and they are constantly used against you. And much of the social program, uh, a whole heck of a lot of it, plays on the idea that an infantile adult mindset is more emotional and thereby more manipulatable using emotional tools to divide and conquer. But, I mean, there's just no getting away from these things. They just re-released this movie, uh, same as it ever was. You know, 1915, we're making this big point how they introduced this offensive idea of social programming. Well, they just did it again. As a matter of fact, we should look it up. I wouldn't be surprised to see it was 2015, um, exactly 100 years later. Now, I'm hearing it said, and the reason why I bring all this up is because there, there's actually several other points that go along with this, that racial tensions today in 2017 are are now as bad again as they had been in the 1960s. Uh, I don't think that's true, but I could be wrong. And if it is true, it's because it's intentionally being incited from the uh, from the powers that be. I can tell you that people, generally speaking, don't give a crap what color your skin is and that they're doing this on purpose. No, they, they play the race card all the time. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. Um, half of the fake shootings that we've seen where there's some ethnic angle to the shooter or the victim or the person being beat or the nonsensical stage nonsense that was Rodney King. It is always the same tools used over and over. And it's time as a world that we grew up and began to use our adult minds, use your higher, higher mind to see through these illusions brought to to you uh, by film, because the world is not in a TV. It just isn't. What is in a TV is a construct of images that someone somewhere planned and put together. And before I hand it back to you, uh, Birth of the Nation was re- remade and re-released in 2016. So there it is. hundred years later, they do the whole same thing again. Uh, the, the, the oldest tricks are the best tricks, are they not, man? Yeah, well, this is the thing that I wanted to get to before I move on to the next point. The same thing is being done in the truth community with making the accusation that everything evil in the world is being done by Jews. Right. It's the same right. thing. Now, are a lot of the bankers and, and that sort of thing, are they Ashkenazi Jews? Yes, of course. But you cannot point your finger and just say it's all any one thing of anything. That's just not true. It's, it's an infantile, lower mindset. People who come in to do this show that they've been socially programmed, and you so rightly point this out. I see it in comments all over the place when I go out and do these shows that I'm such a bad person because I won't point my fingers at Jews. And I say over and over and again, you know how many Jewish people I've known in my life that don't even know what we're talking about right here, that are so far removed from any of this, so why would I ever? You know, it, it, it's, it's no different than Birth of a Nation. You know, you're taking a whole race of people and demonizing them and making them to be less. It's no different. Um, When people do bad things, you point at the people who did the bad things. You don't group them up into some overarching group 
And I would point out as well that even doing that, you know, pointing at Jews and acting like they are the problem, every problem in this world, not only shows your your socially programmed infantile mindset, but the whole stage has been set for the Jewish race in general to use this very idea. Um, there's even a word in our dialect called anti-Semitic. Don't you understand how social programming works? And just to be clear, you're never going to hear me, you know, cite any race in this world one way or the other. It's not the way it works if you've got a higher mind to use. If people do bad things, look at the people who did the bad things. There's your culprit. Um, and in this case, I use the word oligarch a lot, which is a little bit better, but it's the closest I can come. Anyhow, Jason, let's try to squeeze at least one more in before we hit the top of the hour. So with the ever-increasing use of radio, and as I previously stated, having a, a radio, a nice Art Deco furniture piece, had become very common throughout uh, the 20s, 30s, and into the 40s. Officially sponsored programs, like President Franklin D. Roosevelt's Fireside Chats, became crucial to disseminate information to the common folk of the United States. Roosevelt broadcasted a series of 30 episodes between 1933 and 1944. The first one, on the bank crisis, was made during the Great Depression on March 12, 1933. In this fireside chat, President Franklin D. Roosevelt starts by saying, My friends, and then explains everything about the bank crisis, how banks work, what had gone wrong, and what the government planned to do. Moreover, he speaks like he is talking to an ordinary American citizen, giving each piece of information in a refreshingly simple English. In fact, 80% of the words he used were in the 1,000 most commonly used words in the English dictionary. Everything was thought and done in order to make Americans feel close to their president and their country. The president spoke as if he was sitting with friends in a warm and cozy corner near a fireplace, creating an illusion of privacy. Due to this level of intimacy, Americans trusted him, and he was thus able to do whatever he wanted without too much dissent. So, Jason, you and I have covered ad nauseum uh, what the Great Depression was, what the Federal Reserve is, how it's not federal at all, that it's just owned by oligarchical families, same old names. But is there a person out there listening who doesn't understand that almost everything political that is put before the American people is planned to the T? Everything. So let's take a look at the date. First of all, he broadcasts between 1933 and 1944. But as the Great Depression gets on, on March 12, 1933, uh, he does a fireside chat. Well, let's take that apart. That would be 3333. Do you see the picture here? Do you see the game? Do you see how this is all encoded like as if they are running on their own private calendar, which in fact they are. These things come around. They happen at a certain predetermined time that for all I know may have been laid on whatever calendar they're using more than 100 years ago. Hell, maybe 200. I don't know. But it is clear that we can show these things. And uh, Jason, I mean, how many things have we pointed out about Roosevelt uh, that, that just stink to high heaven of the complete subjugation of the banking system in this country? Well, Roosevelt knew what was going on with the banking system. Make no, no doubt about that. He was a 32nd degree Freemason. He was all tied in with a lot of people you look at his pedigree and he's connected to the royals like it's all it's the same nonsense over and over and over again for him to even pretend like he didn't know what was going on with the banking crisis is just ludicrous i've forgotten which which president was it that did the recall the illegal recall of the possession of gold he wasn't did. Roosevelt, was it? Was yeah, it, it was Roosevelt? A, uh -huh. Yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten. Go ahead and recap that real quick so people people can remember what actually goes on. So here's a man who's going to allow private families to take over and implement central banking in this country. Tell them what he did with the gold, Jason. Yeah, well, that was in an attempt to, quote unquote, fix the depression and the, and the, the, the great banking crisis. He put out an edict that you couldn't hold gold anymore and, and you actually had, were by law told to come turn your gold in and you were given paper dollars, Federal Reserve notes of quote unquote equal value at the for that day. And by the time this was all done, gold shot up through the roof in value right afterwards because so much of it had been taken out of people's hands. And if you had anything over, I don't remember the exact amount, but you're only allowed to keep very small amounts like a ring or something like that, like that tiny, 
you were considered a felon. You were breaking the law. And what's ironic about this is, and it's been shown endlessly ever since, is I forget whether it was an act or an edict or whatever the hell he posted through the Postmaster General to put this out to the people, is that the President of the United States has no authority to make an edict or any other thing that directs the American people to act in a certain way. He has no authority. So what was actually done wasn't even legal. And here they were, you know, it's no different than what's going on on YouTube. I'm being told I'm locked out and can't communicate with my 80,000 followers because I'm a bully right now. Um, it's all nonsense. And it's no different than, you know, what went on back here where you have a president acting like he's a dictator telling people, well, you can keep a ring and certain commemorative objects or an heirloom, but all other gold needs to be turned into us. And this game goes on and on and on. Anyhow, Jason, we're getting close to the top of the hour here. Is there anything you want to add? Well, just to get this specific, so I don't give a vague uh, interpretation of it. Executive Order 6102 is a United States presidential executive order signed on April 5th, 1933 by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, forbidding the hoarding of gold coin, gold bullion, and gold certificates within the continental United States. The effect of the order, in conjunction with the statute under which it was issued, was to criminalize the possession of monetary gold by any individual partnership, association, or corporation. So there you go. So anyone who wants to understand how social programming works, go look up what Jason just described to you. Look up the people who have shown uh, what powers the president actually is supposed to have. And what you will find once again is it is no different than what this podcast that Jason and I are doing is all about. We have rights as long as we stand up for them. Had everyone told Roosevelt, go pound sand, buddy, we'll keep our gold. You have no right to take it. We'd be living in a slightly different world right now, but that's not, in fact, what happened. Here we are again at this crossroads where our natural rights are being threatened by corporation. And I can't overstate enough how critically important the idea of free speech, free thought and freedom of expression is. Right now, mine is being squished under the guise of bullying, which is complete wholesale nonsense. So again, man, I hope all of you will join with Jason and I and stand up and follow the five actionable points that we've pointed out to everyone to start to stand up and push against this and say, you know what? We don't got to fight. We don't got to do anything. We simply do not accept this nonsense that you people who are supposedly in power are pushing. Anyhow, Jason, anything you want to add before we close up the first hour? Well, to put a capstone on that point with the gold, he made sure that he got that March 12th fireside chat out about the banking crisis before they implemented the gold confiscation. So everyone loved and trusted Roosevelt and knew that he, what he was doing was the right thing for them. So you, you can see the programming right then and there. But since we're at the end of hour one, I'd just like to say to everyone, if there are any shows you want Crow and or myself on, please get in touch with us, email us, however you want to do it, especially if you have contacts in some of the bigger shows out there. We definitely want to get the message out be just because of all the ridiculousness that's been going on here. Yeah, man, the heat is on. And uh, just to reiterate, all the free programming that was on YouTube under Crow 777's channel is available on Crow777radio.com. You don't have to log in. You don't have to sign in. The first hour is free. If you want to support what Jason and I are doing, you can become a member and get full episodes. The people who, who join up as recurring members are actually making what we're doing sustainable. We don't know what's coming. We don't know if the ISPs, the Internet Service Providers, are going to start to try to go the same way as Google. But the time is now to simply just demand your rights. It's that simple. It is that simple. Do not be a person who is more than willing to be crunched down into an infantile adult mindset and march when you're told to march. If you want to march in this life, it should be because you've made the decision to march. That's not what's going on here. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the first hour. I hope to see you all over at Crow777radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers. Cheers.